Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. My guest today is Chad Thiessen, uh, who uh, has an organization called Futures Forward. Um, and we'll dig into that, of course, almost immediately. But uh, I, I should note that uh, Chad is also a member of the uh, GRC, or he's at least working with GRC, the Global uh, Regeneration Collab, uh, which is part of the background of these podcasts in, in general. Um, and it's quite interesting to me in terms of timing. Timing is always sort of something to note in that this is going to be um, a conversation around regenerative community. Um, and drilling down into that sort of the lever uh, or the, the sub-focus maybe of uh, regenerative economics and all in a quest for more uh, social sustainability in the larger regenerative picture. So we've got some stuff to to lay out and uh, maybe unpick a bit, but hoping that um, all of you listening will get as much from this as I'm sure I'm about to. So without further ado, Chad, Hello. Hello, indeed. Thank you so much. I look forward to this conversation quite a bit. And let's see what we uncover. And you're based in Vancouver, Canada, right? Close. Victoria, British Columbia, which is on an island just off the coast of Vancouver. And a little more Mediterranean in the climate than Vancouver proper. Well, I don't know. To be honest, it's a little windier here and we get a little more rain. We're right across from Seattle. If we look across the water, we're actually below the 49th parallel. We can wave at those Americans and say, hi, guys. But so you get that Trump. you get some some ocean currents, right? A little, uh, we do. I mean, this is a bit nerdy, you know, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing that fascinates me. Um, it, it's kind of as close to the Mediterranean as Canada's going to see. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. So, Chad, um, I was just going through the Futures Forward uh, website one more time, and also checking out there, you know, some. I guess they're kind of reflective or parallel details from your own profile. Um, and one of the things that I'd really like to maybe look into first with you is the motivation and the inspiration that, that got you into this. I mean, I note that you have a background in uh, real estate development as well. Mm-hmm. And as you, as you mentioned just before we hit the record button, there is a continual call for attention to the economic side of regeneration. Yeah. 
but you know all of that could really describe quite a few people so mm-hmm. tell us a bit about the you know take us take us along on on that journey that got you into your current focus and, and activity well i don't want to you know position myself as an expert but i i understand that you're looking to inspire listens listeners to to do more and figure out how they can shift their life into a more regenerative focus. And I'll be very honest, I'll I'll share some very personal details. I have an amazing son and I knew it from very, very early on. And of course, every parent will brag about their kid, but so everyone's kid can be amazing, but mine's amazing in, in a number of ways. And he has a very high level of sensitivity to everything around him. And he has some behaviors in his life from some other people that are uh, very difficult for him to work with. And I won't go into details because I'm not trying to, you know, belittle people in his life or um, other people that I have to deal with. But they, they are really hard to overcome. And so I realized early on that I had had a job as a father, and that was to give him the skills to manage those behaviors and still have a healthy, balanced life. But I realized I needed to put a very major focus on that. And so when he was old enough to sort of express his thoughts in a fairly coherent way, we had a discussion. And he was not even five yet. He was still four. And I said to him, so okay, we've decided we want to live the life we love. That's our phrase. He says, I came up with it. I say he came up with it, but we want to live the life we love. How do we do that? And he he had this little look on his face, all serious and pensive. And he's like, well, dad, we need to be surrounded by people who love and care for us. And I'm like, yeah, right on, dude. Glad you recognize that. And, and, and we need to have enough money to pay the bills. And I'm like, oh boy, he shouldn't even know that's an issue. Because the time we were, oh man, let's just say that uh, buying food at the time was a real struggle. Things were crazy, chaotic, messed up. And then I asked him, is that all? And he's like, well, we need to save the planet. And I'm like, that's awesome. And then my brain goes, wait a minute, this four-year-old just described People, profit, and planet. Holy crap. Like if a four-year-old can figure this out, the rest of us should too. And I was really struggling trying to figure out how to separate my son and myself from the chaos that's being created in our life. And I realized, well, why don't I just create a community that gives that to us? I have the flexibility in my life and I've I've dedicated my son, myself to my son and what his needs are. So let's do this. Okay, bud, go get your crayons. And you ran off and we started drawing logos and drawing the village and the community. And I, it's just, it sort of started from there. Well, he's now 12. So the ideas evolved a lot and he's the co-founder of Futures Forward. Now, of course, he's becoming a teenager. So some days he's just not as interested. He started his own social venture on the side because, you know, having one international social venture is not good enough for him. But it, it really helped me, you know, focus on what I wanted to do with my life. Because people ask that question. If money wasn't an issue, what would you do with your life? Well, I sorted out all the chaos. Okay, not all the chaos. I sorted out some of the chaos, got back some of my money. And now I have enough pennies in the bank. I can do whatever I want. I can sit in, on the couch and eat bonbons and watch Netflix, or I can do something. 
And so I choose to do something and it means I have something I'm excited to do every day. I get out of bed and I meet amazing people around the globe. And the focus is just on regenerative community. But it all started from that one conversation with my four-year-old son that I will never forget. I think that's a really beautiful story. Yeah, I'm, I'm convinced that we come into this world fully equipped and fully aware, and then things happen that <laughs> ca- cause us to distance from that, you know? So with, with kids, yeah. it's, it's, it's really about, well, okay, I, I, I don't want to insult anybody because this is meant in the most positive way, but I used to have a border collie, and, <laughs> and in border collies, you don't train them to do anything, and mm. I think that's kind of similar with, 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 um, working well with kids in that what you do is you observe and you support what naturally manifests yes. itself. So like, like a, a border collie is, there's a whole lot of instinct there. And as it matures, it starts to exhibit the sorts of behaviors that make it a good sheepdog. <laughs> and all, all you do as, as the, as the trainer is reward it and encourage it. Right. And I, and it's not so, you know, I love border collies, so it's by no means a slight against human children. But I think too, you know, I mean, I've, I also have spent quite some time in, in education and that's what works, you know? It's like it, in some ways we need to guide and in other ways we need to get out of the way. Yeah, the psychological term for that being scaffolding. So I'm always thinking what's beyond, just beyond his reach. And I set it up and then I'm like, okay, you know, how can I, help him get there in his own way. But yeah, right. I I need to get out of his way and I need I need to keep up with the pace of his change because frankly, it's not that easy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's it's great. So you were able to leverage also um I mean, were you already in property development or 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 real estate generally at that time or yeah, did you move into my, that? <laughs> my start in real estate was very interesting. As a first year business student, I convinced two of my classmates to buy the other half of a condo with me. We bought a four bedroom condo at the base of the hill from the university thinking we're geniuses because if anyone needs a four bedroom condo near a mall and a university, they'll pay well. So we're going to make, oh, we're going to make so much money. We're so smart. Turned out to be Canada's first and worst leaky condo. And it was a gong show. And I lived there for five years thinking, well, I'm a full-time student. I'm a varsity athlete. I run my own business. Someone else can solve this. I'm just going to rent out the other bedrooms and pay the mortgage and it's all good. Five years in, it's only getting worse. We got legal fees coming out the wazoo, repair fees coming out the wazoo. And I finally decided, okay, I'll get on strata council. And very quickly they elected me president. And I was like early (laughs) twenties. So, okay. And then I went through all the ideas that were coming in and I decided we're going to rezone the land and sell the land which has never been done to a strata development in Canada before or since. So I learned a lot. No one would have paid me to do that job, but I got our first offer on the land was $6 million and our final offer is 26. So with $26 million offer, we walked away with what we'd paid for the condos 10 years earlier. So it wasn't a magnificent victory, but at least we kept our shirts while other people were walking away bankrupt. And uh, for a lot of the people there, they were low income. They were people who'd spent their entire retirement fund to buy a home. Families 
large, poor families, uh, people without education, they desperately needed a way out. So I took that knowledge and I started rolling it into my own rental properties and just had more and more. And at one point I had 13 different rental properties in Vancouver, which Vancouver is not the cheapest city in the world. So that was, that was something. And then I got in the wrong partnership and devastated almost all of that in the span of one year. So, uh, and then I rebuilt. So yes, I've, I've experienced real estate from many different angles. Your, um, like future futures forwards, it still uses some element of, of all that experience, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. The first project we took on was uh, building our own regenerative community from scratch. And I looked at pieces of land all over Vancouver Island. I was looking at golf courses. I did seven months of due diligence on one of those golf courses before I walked away, but eventually ended up buying just under 10 acres of land. And we set it up to house, regeneratively house a hundred people. So we generate our own energy, manage our own wastes, um, grow our own food, all the things that you need to do. The only input we really needed was internet because nobody in the developed world or anywhere in the world wants to live without internet. We all want our internet. Yeah. I mean, that, thus this call, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, and, and so how long, have, how long has this, or give me the name of the village. So the name of the village is, it has two names, actually. Uh, we got a name from the First Nations elder, and that would be, okay, it's Alstom Uxween Shonetan. And that is in the local First Nations language, which is Hulkaminum. And it means something shown great care and respect, small footprint. Okay. And when the elder said Alstom, I heard her say Austin. And I was like, Oh my God, that's my son's name. And, and then when I heard the full name, they're like, you don't have to use it. I'm like, no, we, we, we need to use this name. It's a, it's a gift. It represents exactly what the community is, but we also have to have a name that, you know, we can use in marketing. So most likely English. And so we went with Austin Greens. So my son's name Greens. And it, to me, it just blends all the care and respect that the First Nations show for the generations ahead and with their, their wisdom. And it's, it's to me, it's the perfect pair of names. And beyond the consultation on the name, uh, have you been working with further input from the elders? I would love to, but the honest answer is no. And there is a there is a great hesitation in North America for First Nations and Indian nations to work with the white guys. And I've talked to several chiefs about it, and I basically get the same answers. We love that you're here to work with us, but Honestly, Chad, we have our own stuff to deal with. We don't have time for white guy issues. I'm like, okay, I accept that. The door is always open. I would love to have a true collaboration with them. But there's a phrase many elders use now, and it's called building at the speed of trust. And that is a very slow process. And, and really, I completely understand and respect that. And a necessary and apt phrasing too, I think. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, so how long has, has the community been, because I'm not going to try to pronounce that. Um, <laughs> Austin, so Austin Greens. Uh, yeah, Austin Greens. Simple how, how English it? name. Or so Alstom. It was, the piece of land that it's on was 
put in the official community plan 10 years ago with a special designation for a model sustainable community. But I didn't purchase it until about two years ago. And at that point, I started to redesign and rezone it specifically. So it's now in for rezoning and we're waiting for the planning department to officially confirm that we can do what we're, we're planning, which is actually better than what they asked for. So it's kind of a no brainer. And after that, we can start building. But for now, I'm busy doing projects all over the world. And in terms of uh, in terms of the hundred um, potential, you know, uh, families, um, hundred people, 100 just people. like nine to okay. hundred people. Okay, it's, it's have you got a lot of people to sign up already? There has been a ton of interest, and it comes from a wide group of people. And a lot of people assume it's like, oh, it's a bunch of hippies that want to live there. It's like, no, it's bankers and architects, and certainly there's lots of people that want to live um, cheaply or free, or but. The reality is that it has such appeal to live in a deeply connected community that is functional and healthy, but still incorporates, you know, modern convenience with this collective community. And if you see, you know, you live in Holland, so you would see this a lot more than we would see in, say, North America, where there's communities where the elderly are deeply integrated. And to me, that seems great because I'm not getting any younger. Yeah, it also it's it's um, I have followed quite closely and and initially was more involved with the conceptualization of uh, an eco village project in Ireland. I think it's still Ireland's. Mm. I, I used to live in Ireland. Um, I think it's still Ireland's only eco village, but it's it's gone through now three or four complete changes in ownership since its conception. Ah. Uh, you know, well, I, there was one big change just around the time of the economic, the last economic crash, not the next mm. one. And I, I think people were buying in because they were kind of hedging their their investments in some way. And then that didn't really work out in terms of the dynamic. And then those people sold out either during the crash or immediately after the crash because they wanted to recoup their investment. Another group came in and they really had a lot less to do with the founding principles. And that mm. created a really problematic dynamic. They eventually sold off. And I think now they're working on yet another cohort who are more intentionally arriving because of the, the, the values that are in place there, for instance. And I think that example touches on many of the challenges inherent with an eco-village model. So we chose not to follow an eco-village model uh, for a variety of reasons, but we're incorporating things that come from eco-villages or other forms of intentional community. One of the things we discovered is that populations that are drawn to intentional community are often drawn there because of personal trauma. They're searching for a place of healing and they bring that trauma with them. Now we all have trauma. You know, anyone who says they don't have trauma, they scare me because that suggests they're not aware of what they've got, gone through in their life. Everyone's tolerance for trauma is different. But when groups of people who haven't managed that trauma or don't, don't have the coping skills or the infrastructure to deal with that trauma come together, eventually they collide in a very uncomfortable way. And the other piece of the puzzle, because many eco-villages work very hard to develop the social infrastructure, but they lack the diversity to make it as resilient as possible. 
And another piece of the puzzle that really drives a nail in the coffin of most eco-village plans is the economic piece of the puzzle. Because many of those populations have a fear of money, a hatred of money, a misunderstanding of money, when in a sense, it's just a tool, a very necessary tool. And if it's not part of the core plan for a regenerative community, that community will almost certainly fail. So I see two failures inherent in most eco-village plans, a lack of social skills development and infrastructure and a lack of economic, regenerative economic development and planning. I think good points. And it's clear that what may have seemed to you to be somewhat of a, a delay process in, in, in chasing this, this vision has been very educative. Oh, very much so. You've had lots of time to analyze what's like, especially what goes wrong. And it's really helped me create a template that we can, you know, copy from community to community, particularly when you're crossing cultures like into Africa or India or Australia. Um, you know, maybe the stretch to Australia isn't as big, but if you go into Burundi, one of the five poorest countries in the world, and just try and drop your eco-village model in there, eh, you're going to have some problems. But if you're able to listen to the locals and draw on their culture and figure out how to make their needs meet their needs, then it's a very different proposal. Okay, let's look at that because there's some problematic wording in in, in that um, for me, for me, (laughs) but it's perhaps just the wording. So in in terms of a process of, of, uh, you know, facilitating facilitating this coming together in a place like Burundi. What distinguishes it? I'm not actually sure which set of questions I want to ask to clarify that Mm. for for myself, but um, what distinguishes it from just a 21st century form of of ideological colonization? In other words, when, when I hear people talk about coming in and working with the local people, it can sound and in reality can be um, a process where you kind of touch base, but you're still driving your agenda versus making yourself available because you have some interest in um, what's going on on the ground there and having them drive that process, even to the point where you might risk them saying, thanks, see you later. So we're, and I know situations vary, right? (laughs) And, and, And they vary, including with timing. And I know that for an individual group, NGO, whatever, um, which has a laudable agenda, but Mm -hmm. still their agenda, it's tricky. So Eric, if you hadn't posed that as a concern, my respect for you would have dropped. So thank you. There is is a, a whole generation of people waking up and going, oh my God, what have I been doing? I need to help these poor people. And I am not a white knight rushing in to save anybody. I consider myself a catalyst. So I am there to help make a change happen faster. But it's a change that would have happened without me anyways. So then there's so many layers to this. And I guarantee that if you talk to me in a year from now, you would get different nuances as I learn because I am actively learning. I'm still coming from an entitled white guy background from one of the richest 
cities and the richest countries in the world. And there's a ton of stuff I just don't know and will never understand. So I have to own that. I mean, let's, you know, you want to call it racism, you want to call it white entitlement. I don't care what you call it. That's my stuff. I got to own it. So how do I go about supporting in a catalytic way this shift? And there's so many layers to it. Ultimately, it has to do with trying to coordinate the locals and give them frameworks to work on. So I'm going to go back to that phrase I used earlier about working with my son. And it's scaffolding. It's like, where are they headed? How can I help them reach something just out of their capacity right now in a way that fits for them? Because I want my son to be his own man. He's reach his own potential as opposed, and the same applies to a community in Burundi. I want them to breed their own community to reach their own potential, which may be outside of whatever I could offer. And part of that is connecting them with other local experts. So right now, part of our project in Burundi is a permaculture train the trainer program. So obviously, I ha- we have many Canadian contacts who could go into Burundi, French-speaking permaculture experts who've worked many years in East Africa, and we could send them in and teach them to do permaculture and then walk away and pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, we're so smart, we're so good, we're so giving, what good white people we are. And no. Instead, what I've done is found some local Africans who can go in and support them in teaching themselves to teach their neighbors. So in the case of Burundi, we have a group coming from a refugee camp in Uganda, and they have been teaching youth and adults how to do permaculture. So we're bringing them to Burundi. They speak all the local languages, French and Kurundi, which are the main, and Swahili, the main language spoken in the region. And so they're like locals. They understand the local customs and trends to a degree that I will never. And also, they're African, not white. So it's Africans helping Africans in a neighboring country and coming from a, they're, they're refugees, so they understand the nuances of strife and struggle more than most of us. And in that way, when they leave, they can still call their friends in Uganda and say, I'm having trouble with this, but they'll be left with the ability to teach their neighbors how to do permaculture. So again, the model is helping them find their own feet and teach each other. In some cases, people from Tanzania will come over, sorry, Tanzania, will come over and teach them beekeeping. And again, it's a train the trainer program, but it's all about helping each other. And those programs that are supporting us from Uganda and Tanzania, we will provide them support from other African communities. Maybe it's from Kenya. So all that is just a cycle of sharing. And that sharing economy is very much familiar to um, Africa as a continent, the whole Ubuntu concept. And it fits with some of the local traditions. And in in the case of uh, Burundi, they have something called Ikabiri. And that is that every Saturday from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m., the whole community gets together and does something that benefits the community. So when you tie in that local wisdom and tradition, with this permaculture, train the trainer, sharing economy, with locals helping locals exceed their current capacity, you have something that you, we started the, the rock rolling, but where it goes and how it go down the hill has very little to do with us.
So there is an aspect of that. I think it's as a, as a quite deeply, from the sound of it, quite deeply integrated aspect of that, that I believe exhibits an inspiring potential that could be part of the larger conversation around decolonizing Right, because yeah. just the same as as I was uh, was reflecting earlier about border collies and children, and it's like getting out of the way of something, and it, yep. to to recognize that there is at least five hundred, six hundred, maybe more years of uh, legacy around colonization of an entire continent and many other regions of the planet, enabling self self determined scaffolding. Yeah, pretty it's, much. It, it's a way of, of helping to take the colonial foot off the throat of the community. And I want to, you know, I, I, I always find the colonial discussion to be a very negative one, but I, I want to look at the other aspect of this, I'll call it growth and development, the natural course of development. And that is, you've heard the phrase, teach a man to fish and feed him for a lifetime. I hate that phrase. Number one, why the heck are we teaching the man? Because you and I both know that women are the community builders. The man's going to focus on his needs and maybe his family's needs. I'm like, okay, teach, teach a person to fish, more likely the women to fish, and they will feed their family. But let's take a step beyond that because that is very, very narrow focus. Why wouldn't you teach them to set up a fishery? to feed several families. In fact, why stop there? Why don't you set up a cooperative of fisheries so you can feed a whole region? And oh, that is, that's ridiculous. Why stop there? Why don't you set up a cooperative of cooperatives so you can feed a nation or a planet? And that is the direction we need to go. And that, that rolls in so many pieces of the puzzle. You look to the community builders and you seek to strengthen that community with community wealth building. Wealth building in the terms of skills, not just money, obviously, but money. Most of the money is going back to the people doing the work, the social skills that are necessary to fine tune and hone that business because those same social skills will benefit them in the home environment. But everything becomes very circular. And when organizations like that get together, their focus is almost always regenerative, which means the environment benefits. And the leaders of those communities are the people that are making a difference. Often they are not the men. Often they are not the traditional leaders. They are the aunties, the mentors in the background, the elderly, sharing their wisdom. Those are the people. And even if here in Canada, if I want to figure out how to support a marginalized group of people, I would go to the older women in that marginalized group and say, what do you need? And whatever they tell me, I would probably say, just give it to them or help them get it for themselves is probably a better way to put it. Ultimately, the path needs to be in building their capacity and economics driven by strong social values, strong social skills, and strong social infrastructure is key. Yeah, I mean, in fact, almost any group that's that's trying to get its its feet more securely onto the land, or or uh, you know, recover that rather, <laughs> the first thing that, that they're going to tell you they need is is a secure economy, right? Yeah. Um, so that they can they can get away from the hand to mouth and and actually start 
focusing on the creative and, and constructive uh, self-development. It's absolutely so. We're going to take a break now, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind & Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise, where I'm speaking today with Chad Thiessen from Futures Forward. Let me shift a little bit. This is all really, really uh, interesting and clarifying for me because you are a team of a, of a father-son team and you're working with local teams that, that come together around the projects. But when you look through the website and then you and, and look at the projects um, and then you contrast that um, against what looks like the core of, of, of your activity or your, the core of your enterprise. Um, it does look as though either Superman is in charge or you've really learned the leverage uh, process. Uh, I suspect yeah. that's a second. Um, but could, can you talk a little bit, a bit about, like what could we learn from your, your experience in leveraging situations? Because it's very often the case that, that you have a passionate handful or even sometimes an individual that manages to tip systems in a good, good direction. And that's, you know, it's got to happen through some combination of, of uh, um, you know, strategic design and pure leverage. Well, you know, you can use the term leverage. Um, ultimately, I, I want to go back to this really simple concept. And this is a, a father listening to his son and then actively working picking away at it. And when I first started, it was really slow. And I didn't, you know, I didn't make much progress. I didn't really know what to do. I didn't know where I was going, but I kept at it, picking away, picking away. And it was kind of fun to involve my son in it. And then as I searched outside of my group, you know, I collected a group of, honestly, it was a bunch of old white men who thought, yeah, we know how to build sustainable communities. And it turned out, well, no, they didn't. Um, they didn't hadn't cornered the market on all the knowledge. So it's just, I kept digging and I, I go to an event that would push my boundaries. I go into a webinar, like I went to Spectrum, which was a, an online event for BIPOC people in the investment world doing social enterprises. And I'd meet someone and they would introduce me to other people and other people. And you just keep pulling on that thread. And the things that fall out of the sky are freaking amazing. I mean, you know, I met this one woman who's like starting a $50 million investment fund for um, uh, people, women of color, business leaders that are looking to expand. I met people all over the globe doing these amazing things, people in India, people in Indonesia. And I just kept pulling and asking questions. And it was fun. Meeting these people was so 
amazing. You feel so inspired and your eyes open wide. You're like, oh my God, I had no idea that was going on. How can you live like that? That can't be true. Oh my God. What you need, that's all you need to change that? That's all you want? Oh my God. Okay. I've got someone over here in this country that can give you that. I'll let me hook you guys up and you guys can go to town. And it's like, boom, boom, boom. My only magic power is practically connecting the ideas and skills of other people. That's it. I'm not a genius. I'm not a Superman. I'm just a guy who's like, oh man, I pulled this string. Look what fell out of the sky. And I'm going to connect these ideas and boom, explosion. This is amazing. Now, at the same time, a lot of them go, they go nowhere. I'm busy pulling this, the string some more and more stuff comes out of the sky. And eventually it's like, oh, wait a minute, that balloon that fell flat over here, I can put these two pieces together and poosh. Sometimes it takes years. I've got a project in Ghana that, you know, it was exciting at first and then they fell on their face. And then I threw in some more stuff and they fell on their face and I threw in, I keep throwing stuff at them and I will keep doing that until something sticks. But eventually, usually the people I throw at those projects are like, wow, that was so interesting, but it's not working out. But is there something else I can help you with? Yes. Yes, there is. I've got a project over here in Burundi, one in Kenya. What about the one in Zimbabwe? Or, oh, we've got some, this woman in Zambia. You will love her. And it just goes like that. And every region has the same pattern. I am having fun doing what I love. Anybody can do it. They just have to choose to make a little bit of time and pick away and pick away and pick away. And soon you're peeling off big chunks. It's kind of like an extended dinner party, isn't it? In that sense, it's like you're pulling people together and going, "Okay, well, you probably should sit next to this one because you're going to have a great (laughs) conversation. And, you know, like, let me look at my guest list again. It's like, who's missing from this club? And and it's it's the same uh, not the same. It's 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 a parallel set of social awarenesses and kind of a carrying also a social map around in in your head. But the guest list just keeps getting more and more amazing. Exactly. And it is incredibly fun and rewarding to be able to step back just enough to see relationships and then help to to kind of catalyze those connections. I totally get it. It's a personal growth thing too, because now, you know, when I talk to people that I, I used to, well, I still spend some time with them, but I realize how narrow our, I'll say our perspective is and has been. And in some ways I'm, I'm outgrowing many of these relationships and I'm all the better for it um, because I'm replacing them with ones that are so much more fulfilling and help me grow. And it's that saying, you know, if you want to know how well you're going to do in life, look at the people around you and the quality of the people I have around me is that I'm now connected with is an order of magnitude beyond what it was five, even two years ago. I know people who haven't finished high school that are the most educated, classy people on the planet. I know people who have multiple PhDs who I cannot bear to speak with because they lack insight. And again, not to throw stones, but I have sat in on webinars and met with some of the the experts in the field. People fall at their feet, kissing their shoes. And it is really obvious to me within a few minutes, whether or not this person has a clue about how the world works and what it takes to make a positive impact. 
And I have to be honest, a lot of these people that we're listening to, we should not be listening to. Yeah, there's a, there's another conversation, entire conversation around <laughs> around um, around that. That's all I can say right now because it, because uh, we have a deeply embedded Western cultural proclivity. But if if someone to comes people, in to put people on pedestals as experts and then fawn over them, right? And and uh, yeah, there's a but whole if thing we come that. in with the right values and develop our own social skills, that puts us so far ahead of the majority of those experts already. Think about, so if you're not sure you're who you want to be, think about your values. What do you want your values to be? And move towards those by finding people like that. And develop the social skills that will allow you to be a valuable part of that community. And you will change your life. You will change your children's life. You will change the lives of the people around you. Yeah, I'm not saying push all this stuff on them, but you can just, you know, scaffold them, drop a tidbit and see if they reach for it. And if they don't, that's fine. If they do, it's like, oh, come on, here's another tidbit. And just lead them down the path where they want to go. And oh, when those, when people you've been around all your life decide to take that path with you, it's exciting. Okay. If this was in print, I would have highlighter all over that last statement. <laughs> and so if you're, it's, so for those of you who are listening now to this podcast, back up a few seconds and listen to it again, because this is one of the most important pieces of your experience and insight that, is, that has been touched on in this entire conversation. Oh, well, all right then. Thank you. This is, this is how you get from, I care about what's happening, but not sure what I can do to let's go do this. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, definitely pause, back up, listen again, take it in. Fair enough. Thanks so much for that that tidbit. It's a, like a massive tidbit. <laughs> <laughs> well, my adverse, my advice is worth what you paid for it. And since you didn't pay for it, you can ignore it all. <laughs> there you go. At your peril. We have about 10 minutes left. Are there things that that you feel are missing from this conversation in terms of what you kind of like listeners to be chewing on or or Uh, maybe scaffolded with? So there's there's a couple pieces of the puzzle that I want to look at. And one and they're all tied to social issues. One of the main things that I find is a lot of the efforts out there to create change are totally frustrated with not being successful. And one of the ways to look at the issue is through the lens of something called community-based social marketing. Now, there's a gentleman by the name of Doug McKenzie-Moore, M-O-H-R, and he has a website, cbsm.com. I refer tons of people to him. He doesn't even know I do this. Um, He is actually currently living in Victoria, but he's lived and worked all over the world, particularly in Australia, helping people figure out how to change behaviors related to climate change. But his model is very powerful in terms of figuring out how to make change in all social environments for pretty much all social behaviors. So I strongly suggest people look into his work. He's got some quick YouTube videos that will explain his basic idea. So just look it up. Great. We'll put a link. We'll put a link on the the podcast page. Beautiful. But ultimately, the problem is that we 
so many of us just bash our head against a wall and then say, ah, it's a wall. I give up. It's like, well, no, there's scratch away at the grout, knock out a few bricks and then just pick away at it and make that hole bigger and bigger. And he shows a path to do that, that use applied psychology. One of my degrees is psychology. So, you know, learn, train the trainer background all comes from that. But the other piece of the puzzle has to do with the core behaviors that are truly valuable in a regenerative community design. And this is stuff like nonviolent communication. As a person, can I hear your needs? I mean, really hear your needs. I'm talking, not talking about a technique like, oh, I will do active listening and then I'm a good listener. Pat myself on the back. What is this person saying? What is underlying what they're saying? Because often what they say is not what they really need. And they're not going to always tell you what their needs are. It's like, okay, I, how do I figure out their needs? And then how do I express my needs in a way they will hear? Because once you figure that piece out, things start to happen a lot faster. You've been in those meetings where they go on and on and on and on and no one says anything. And you're, you leave going, what the heck was that? That was a waste of my time. Hear the needs, speak your needs, finish it quick. And it's amazing how productive you can be. So nonviolent communication, highly important skill. Conflict resolution skills, mediation skills. Oh my goodness. Think about all the different places in our lives that this makes a difference. Now I want you to consider this scenario. I'm a woman in Africa. I'm a woman in a poor country in Africa. My husband has four wives. I have eight children from him. He's angry and frustrated because he doesn't have a job. He beats me. He has me cook for him, take care of all his kids, do everything, walk to get the water. Man, what would my life be like if I had some de-escalation skills so he doesn't beat me? That's just one piece of the puzzle, but it's so severe in the lives of many women that I, I discovered in one of the communities you went to, the women sabotage the water system. And I'm like, that's insane. Now they have to walk. They get together with a group of women and they have to walk half a day to get water and come back. Why would they do that? And then one of the aunties explained to me, well, then they're out of the house and away from the men in a group of women and safe. Oh my God. The water system that was sabotaged was due to a social issue. If the women had the skills to hear the needs of their men, express their own needs, de-escalate conflict, how different would their lives be? It's not a matter of intelligence. No one's practiced those skills. No one's shared those skills with them. It's just a tool, a trick. Wow. And some of this also goes with change management and crisis management. Let's say there's a flood because... This area of land has been deforested because we cut it all down for firewood. So when it rains, it floods and washes everything away. All our crops, all our farms, all our everything gets washed away. If we had crisis management skills, we could better cope with that. And, you know, right now I'm selling my, my, my vegetables at the market. And what if this, I have a harvest that just goes kaput? 
So my market has changed. Do I have change management skills? Well, if I do, I'm better off. And the whole community, you know, we're, we're all doing different things. We're all duplicating each other's efforts and like everyone's selling carrots. So there's not, we don't get a good price for our carrots because everyone's selling carrots or everyone's selling tomatoes and they spoil right away. But what if we had some form of inclusive leadership where everyone's voice is heard and it's not like based on democracy where 51% of the population agrees democracy is great and the other 49%, well, suck it. So some kind of sociocracy where it, the vote is based on whether or not consent is withheld. Inclusive leadership, those core skills of inclusive leadership can make all the difference. Now, the traditional male leadership combined with the, the aunties and the elderly and the disabled or the orphan, their voices can all be heard in a way that can help uplift the community as a whole. And the men and the traditional leaders don't need to feel rejected. They can be recognized for what they've done to include and uplift their community. And most of those ideas and ideals are already based in traditional values. In Zimbabwe, they have something called Zunderamambo. The first time I heard about this, I'm like, wow, that phrase sounds cool. What does it mean? And this man told me the story about how his father, a tribal chief, on his deathbed said to him, he said, you need to restart Zunderamambo. And again, I'm like, what is that? It's the chief's lands. The chief would set aside land for the whole community to farm, and that would serve the needs of the orphaned, the elderly, and the disabled. So that value is already there. If you can tap into the existing values, bring in hearing and expressing needs, bring in conflict resolution skills, crisis management, change management, and inclusive leadership, you have the makings for a very resilient community. And if you can focus on different tiny micro ventures within that community that you can train, mentor, and fund, whether it's a bucket toilet system, or it's a composting business, or it's a solar dehydrator business, all those things can be supported by a highly functional group of people. Now you have economic prosperity powered by social skills and infrastructure, and you have a community that's able to build its own wealth. More inspirational scaffolding. <laughs> okay, I, I've, I've got one further question, I think, before we wrap up. Um, that this has just provoked for me. How do you, I mean, this this makes a whole lot of sense, particularly for communities um, already marginalized, right? How do you bring some of that sensibility and uh, even, even um, what might seem to be early stage scaffolding back to an area such as Vancouver? Because it's, it's, it's always interesting, I think, to see how uh, knowledge and technique and, uh, you know, insight can flow in more than one direction. I'm going to borrow um, a quote I got from a SOCAP conference. And SOCAP is a social capital um, web, uh, webinar, well, conference. And it's all about um, investment in social capital markets. And I asked the question of, 
there was a bunch of women of color investment leaders. And I asked this question about how can we apply these new ideas about um, social capital investment to developing nations like Africa? And the woman just broke out in this huge smile. And she said, we actually got the ideas from them. We just changed them a bit and we're reapplying them. So the idea is that most places on the planet already have ways of solving these problems. And it's just a matter of doing a little digging. Here in Canada and North America, we're actually crazy fortunate because many of these ideas are accepted. You know, it's not expected that the man will be the leader of every household and be the supreme decision maker on everything in North America. So those women leaders can already freely do many of the things that they would have to do more subtly in other countries. So again, it's just a matter of finding the people that have those inclusive leadership skills, those social sustainability skills, and give them the tools and the opportunity, the stage to do what they do. There's not, it's not that, it's so much easier to do it here in a developed nation in Europe or North America. It's just one of the blessings we have and don't realize. Yeah, I mean, to mainstream that, for instance, through the educational system would be phenomenal, wouldn't it? Yeah, agreed. As a for instance. I think we're going to wrap it up. I really appreciate you taking time. It's It's been a while of, you know, sort of us passing back and forth schedules and that sort of thing to, to actually be able to make this this call and this conversation. And I appreciate your persistence with that. And I, for one, have, have learned a bunch, uh, had a lot of my own experience reinforced too, hearing it, hearing it from an, another side. And I've had an absolutely delightful uh, hour with you. I hope that, that, I hope that the listeners, um, you know, are, can gain from it equally. And um, yeah, like I said, that that highlighted uh, nugget towards the end was was spectacular as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and um, also want to highlight the fact that you're having a really good time doing this. And I think other people, other people who, you know, similarly find um, find their path can at least guarantee themselves fun. Well, now that they know where to find me and they can uh, drop me a line if they want to join the adventure. Sounds really good. And we'll have all that information when we publish the page. So thanks again. And uh, let's have another conversation. Take care of yourself, Eric. Okay. Take care, Chad. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of Designing Paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.